Thank you for listening to the Missio Day Uptown Podcast. We are a church committed to our neighborhood, seeking to love and serve our beautifully unique community as we join God as He makes all things new. To learn more about us, visit mduptown.com. Uh, welcome to Missio Day. I'm so thankful you guys are here. Um, hey, if you're wondering why we didn't read scripture, we're going to do things um, a little bit interesting, different this morning. Um, I'm going to be telling you a story. Uh, but before I do, and don't worry, it is from scripture. But before I do, uh, if you are new here, um, or if you don't remember, or if you've missed the last couple of weeks, we have been in a series called A Church for Uptown, where we have explored what does it look like for us um, to be continuing to do what we're doing um, while also growing into who we are becoming. Um, and I've asked this question, what kind of church does Uptown need, right? And so for the last two weeks, uh, we've been preaching on this. Two weeks ago, I talked about um, what does it look like for us to be a church who affirms the, di- the dignity of all made in the image of God, right? Um, we expanded that from the people in this room to our neighbors who are unhoused to people just experiencing attacks on their identity, right? Uh, and then we got an opportunity to put it into practice. Um, and so actually, I, so what I want to do real quick, I just want to review what we've looked at and some examples um, of the ways that they have already played out in our church, which is pretty exciting. So um, I invited us to this, but we had a meeting here the Monday after I preached on Dignity um, for the expansion of Cornerstone Community Outreach. Um, I keep looking over here because Andrew is the one who leads CCO. Um, and I just want to say, I, uh, it, it was a really, really positive meeting for those who weren't able to come. A lot of people in this room were there. Uh, which is really, really cool to see. Um, but it, it went really, really well. We don't have any answers uh, as to what Angela has decided, um, but I have some feelings. Regardless, I think God um, was represented really, really well in this space. Um, I also want to shout out Andrew. I mean, Andrew, you absolutely killed it. Um, yeah. <clears throat> uh, there were some hecklers, um, not our kind of friendly hecklers. Um, that our church has, but uh, some people who were um, there to not just attack the idea, but to attack Andrew and his character and his identity. Um, and Andrew handled it really, really well. And I, I just walked away um, like wanting to love people the way God loves him even more. And so thank you for that, Andrew, and thank you for everyone uh, who showed support for that. Uh, the week after that I talked about dignity, Tiana uh, brought a word on presence and love. Um, And it was just a beautiful, beautiful word of what does it look like for us to be more present, right, with people, Uh, not even just like in physicality, but in um, spirit, right? What does it look like for us to have a present spirit Um, and then show and extend love to people? Um, We also had a really, really sweet example of this recently. Um, Now, if you don't know this, uh, every Wednesday, Tiana and Chris and sometimes me uh, go to Alden Lakeland, Um, Now, Alden is on Lawrence. When we had our location on Lawrence, uh, we had a really big population uh, that lived in Alden Lakeland that were able to come over. Um, It's an assisted living facility. Uh, A lot of people um, have physical disabilities, um, are in wheelchairs, things like that. And so it's just not a reality for them to come over here, but we still do visit them and have relationship with them. Beverly says hi to everyone. Um, She's mad some of you haven't visited. But uh, Tiana, um, just to bring up an example of presence and love, uh, Tiana visited a woman named Catherine 
every single week. Um, now, on December 7th, Catherine passed away. Um, and, uh, we, you know, Tiana let me know. Um, it was a really sad thing. But then Tiana has shared with me. I told Tiana I was going to talk about her. I didn't tell her what. But uh, Tiana shared with me an email from Catherine's sister. And so I want to read that to you guys this morning. It says, um, I wanted to let you know that my sister Catherine passed away on December 7th. As you may be aware, she was plagued with a variety of medical issues for many years. I want to thank you for your kindness to Kathy. This is to Tiana. She told me about the Bible study that you were doing for her. She didn't have much to look forward to, but she always looked forward to your visits. I found a few notes that she could have written, or that she had written about her Bible study. I am thankful that she had it to provide her with comfort. So Tiana, thank you for being an example to our church of what presence and love does look like. I think that's just such a beautiful thing. Which brings us to this week. Um, now, usually in my sermons, um, I try or I like to start with an illustration uh, that primes us for what we're going to talk about that day, right? Maybe give us a little example so you know that relevance is on the way. However, this morning is going to be this is still, yeah, yeah, okay. This morning is going to be a little bit different. Uh, I'm not going to be doing that. I'm not going to let you know how this is relevant, and I'm just going to ask that you trust me this morning. Much of the Bible, both in the Old and New Testament, is written in a more narrative style, but often our preaching looks a, a lot like the epistles, right, Paul's letters, um, and that's okay. It's okay that it looks like, but we don't really explore some of the other stylistic um, realities that exist in the Bible. And so this morning, I want to approach um, our Sunday morning differently, and we're going to approach it with a narrative-based sermon. Now, I promise you, I will get to relevance at the end, but I'm also going to just let you know. Like, So uh, I'm going to be telling a story. It's from the Bible. Um, we're going to use um, a sort of style that, uh, Melissa, that I've learned from Melissa Pillman, pastor of Missio de Wrigleyville, uh, called prophetic imagination. Um, Wait, that's not the term? They're, yeah, prophetic imagination. And so what she does is she, she likes to tell these stories from the Bible, but she likes to, to bring us into them and to really consider, like, how, how would we be feeling in this scenario? Like, what is, uh, what is true of the characters um, of the people of the Bible and the ways that they're experiencing the situation, right? And so this morning, I'm going to tell a story from the New Testament, um, and I'm going to... I'll say take liberties. I'm not going to, I'm, I'm not saying like, like strong liberties. It's like, I'm not swaying from what the Bible is saying or what is true of the Bible, but I'm just filling in a little bit more of the um, feelings of the, de of those sorts of details, if that makes sense. And so um, if you want to check my work, uh, I invite you to read the New Testament. Um, but um, this morning, I'm going to be telling a story um, of a man from the Bible. Uh, it's a story most of us will know. But it often feels like it's a story that like, sort of like when you go home for Christmas uh, and you watch parts of Harry Potter on ABC Family, and you've only ever seen like parts of the movie. You know what I mean? That was for, for, for me, that was Forrest Gump for a while. I like knew that he ran fast and that he loved Gen A, but I didn't really know like anything else about the movie. And then I actually sat down. And I was like, oh, like he also likes Dr. Pepper. Um, okay. Four of you have seen the movie. Cool. Um, but, but it's often like sitting down in a movie marathon and we've only gotten snippets here and there, but we haven't really considered like, what does the whole story of this man look like? And that story uh, is of a man named Simon P. 
Peter. Okay, so I'm going to use the term Simon in the story. I'm going to use the term Peter in the story and Simon Peter. Okay, so if you're like, who's Simon? That, it's Peter. Okay. Now, Simon was a fisherman in the Sea of Galilee. Now, fishermen at his time were incredibly business savvy, hardworking, and often had to speak multiple languages in order to be able to sell the fish to the markets that they existed near, right? Simon did not just work by himself, though. He worked with two men, James and John. They were the sons of Zebedee. Now, Simon had just pulled an all-nighter as the fish in his area were often easier to catch at night. But of course, not that night. It was clear Simon and Zebedee's boys had quite an unsuccessful night as they had appeared to the shore with an empty boat. As morning dawned, they pulled closer to the shore and a man named Jesus, surrounded by a crowd, was preaching the word of God. Simon, James, and John sat in their boats close to the shore, allowing themselves some entertainment before they docked the boat and headed home. And then Jesus did something weird. He asks them to join uh, them in the boat, allowing himself some separation from the crowd so he could effectively preach without being swarmed. Simon allowed him, and after Jesus finished preaching, he did a peculiar thing. Jesus saw the empty boat and said, Simon, put out your net. What does a preacher man know about fishing? Peter thought, but he conceded. We didn't catch a single thing overnight when the time was ripe for catching, but I will listen to you, teacher. And to his astonishment, the net was so heavy that the boat began to sink. This was unheard of. It must have been the combination of the preaching of God's word and catching all the fish, but Simon immediately knew he was in the presence of someone greater than himself, someone whose presence he did not think he deserved to be in. And this scared him. Go away from me, Lord, for I am a sinful man. Jesus saw the fear in Simon's eyes. Stand up, Simon Peter. Just as I caught these fish, so you too will catch men for me. And Jesus, seeing that Simon had some idea about who Jesus was, invited Simon to travel with him. And Simon Peter said yes. And is Peter glad he did? Because what he witnessed next for over two years was unbelievable. So unbelievable that there were those from the jump of the ministry who wanted to kill anyone claiming that Jesus had authority to do the things they were claiming he was doing. So what Jesus did was he gathered up a small group of followers and they went from town to town, running into bigger and bigger crowds. Peter heard Jesus preach a sermon on top of a little mountain about what the kingdom of God looks like. He saw Jesus heal people with a touch. They even went into Peter's house where Peter's mother-in-law was deathly ill with a fever. And with a single touch, Jesus made her fever go away and her strength return. The longer he spent with Jesus, the more the word got out about his healings and about what he was preaching and the bigger the crowds got. Peter began to believe he was not just spending time with a good teacher 
or even someone with some of God's power. There was something else going on here. Some even uh, threw out that he was fulfilling scriptures from the prophet Isaiah, who spoke of a man who would take up our infirmities and heal our diseases. There was a day, a decent amount of time into their adventures, where Jesus had just spoken to a large crowd and he wanted some alone time. So he told the smaller group of followers to go out on the boat without him and he would eventually join them. He was going to pray a bit by himself and meet them later. It was nearly dawn. The disciples had been in and out of sleep on the boat, mostly because the harsh waves kept them up. Peter stood on the boat and uh, looking out over the water with a few of the other men, when all of a sudden they saw a shadowy figure seemingly gliding on top of the harsh waves. And rightfully so, they were terrified. It must have been a ghost. And yet, when they cried out that it must have been a ghost, they heard a voice that they recognized. Do not be afraid. Peter, being the only one brave enough to respond to the voice he knew so well, told Jesus that if it was really him, to call him into the water with them. Jesus said, come. And Peter, not even realized what, realizing what he was doing, stepped off the boat and onto the water. And like solid ground, the water calmed below him and held his weight. His eyes were fixed on Jesus as he moved, step after step. The closer he got to Jesus, the more clearly he could see the face of his Lord. And yet, the closer he got, the further he got from the boat, and the more aware he became of what he was doing. And it was wild. (laughs) He began to realize that he was standing in the middle of a lake, a far distance from a boat, and he didn't know what the heck he was doing, right? He began to feel the wind and the waves around him, and he began to panic. As he panicked, Panicked, the water gave way underneath him, and slowly he began to sink. And as he sank, his body became uncontrollable, thrashing in the panic of it all. He did the only thing he knew to do in the moment, and he cried out to Jesus, Lord, help me. Jesus, in his calmness, reached out and grabbed Peter's hand and led him back to the boat. And then the wind died down. What had Peter just seen? What had he witnessed? Why the heck did he climb out of the boat in the first place? Right? The thoughts raced through Peter's mind, but what he suspected about Jesus seemed to be confirmed more strongly the longer he spent with Jesus. In fact, a few days later, Jesus just finished preaching a message about himself that it was a little less love your neighbor and a little more this is a wicked and adulterous generation And the crowds did not like that. Aware that many were discussing who he might be, responding to his message, Jesus asked Peter and the disciples, who do you think I am? Before he could even stop himself, Peter said, you are the Savior, the Son of the living God. Before he could panic about the wild thing he just said, Jesus responded, you are right. But this was not because you figured it out. It was revealed to you by God. It was revealed to me that you, Peter, will be the rock on which I build my church, 
you will have the keys to the kingdom of heaven. Wow. Peter could not believe the words Jesus just said to him, especially for just blurting out something that had come to his head, right? And even though Peter didn't feel responsible for the words, he still let Jesus' response get get to him a little bit. I'm going to have the keys to the kingdom of heaven. I must be pretty special. Yet despite all his good feelings, being a disciple of Jesus was getting harder and harder. The question Jesus was being asked, particularly from those who were part of the religious elite, were more and more contentious. The answers Jesus was giving were harsher and harsher. And more and more, Jesus and his disciples were having to flee towns out of fear for their lives. The rumors about who Jesus was, uh, sorry, the rumors about who was after Jesus were hard to ignore. And then there was the rumor that one of the disciples, one of the 12, would betray Jesus. Maybe it was the heightened sense of tension. Maybe it was being emboldened by Jesus' words that he would be the rock of the church. Maybe it was a combination of both with his impulsive and rash behavior. But even Peter was unsure why he swung the sword when they eventually did come for Jesus. Regardless of the reason, even more unexpected than Peter using the sword to cut off the ear of a man was Jesus' response to Peter doing so. Put your sword away, Peter. I will do what God has laid out for me to do. Put your sword away. In a, in a tone that could have been construed as disappointment or anger, with intensity that shocked Peter, given the circumstances and that he was just protecting his friend, just the thought of disappointing Jesus began to well in him a shame that he hadn't felt before. Peter had made a ton of mistakes up to this point, and they are well documented. But this one felt particularly shameful, a level, a level of shame that can only lead a man into hiding. As Jesus was taken away, Peter followed at a distance, filled with regret from his actions, but also fear for his life if he were to be associated with Jesus. As the day of following Jesus from a distance turned tonight, Peter approached a fire to warm up. Don't you know Jesus, the man condemned to death? A woman asked. I do not, Peter replied. A few minutes later, a man yelled out loud enough for everyone around to hear, this is a man, of, this is man is a follower of Jesus. Man, I am not. Peter began to be agitated. An hour later, someone noticed that Peter was Galilean, just like Jesus. You must be here because you are with Jesus. I have no idea what you're talking about, screamed Peter. At that moment, a rooster crowed, and Jesus looked directly at Peter. At that moment, Peter remembered the words of Jesus earlier that week, that Peter would deny knowing Jesus three times. As if the shame of his previous actions was not enough, Peter was crushed. He left hastily and wept knowing that he once again let Jesus down. Peter left the area, unable to bear the weight of his shame and the grief of Jesus' death. 
He would, not, he would not stick around to comfort his friend as he hung on a cross. How could he look Jesus in the eyes? <clears throat> Peter awaited around in the house with most of Jesus' followers the next couple of days. Processing the overwhelming grief seemed impossible. They had devoted everything to a man they thought would liberate the Jewish people from Roman rule. And yet, by that same Roman rule, he was put to death. Just as Peter was ready to make the trip back to his hometown, Mary Magdalene, one of their friends, comes loudly into the room where everyone had been staying. The tomb is empty. Peter and John both took off running to the tomb. Peter lost the race. When they arrived, the tomb was as Mary had said, empty. The disciples gathered back in the room, confused and afraid for what had happened to the body of Jesus. Was it stolen? Did something else happen? As they were discussing, Jesus himself appeared to them in the room. While the disciples were overjoyed at seeing Jesus, they were seemingly, or they were supremely confused. He showed that he was physically with them. He even ate a piece of fish. And yet, they were unsure of how to proceed or behave. Peter, still experiencing the shame of the denial, did what most men stricken by shame did or do. He returned to where he was comfortable, in his hometown, in a boat, with a net. Now stop me if this sounds familiar. Okay, don't actually stop me because it's going to sound familiar. Peter and the two sons of Zebedee went out on the Sea of Galilee at night when the fish were supposed to be plentiful. And do you know what they caught? Nothing. As it approached the morning, they came back to the shore, and a man called from the shore, asking how many fish they had caught. They told him they hadn't caught any, and he told them they should cast their net again to the right of the boat. They didn't know why this man said what he said, but they listened. And again, the catch was so large that it almost sank the boat. When Peter saw the catch of the fish, he realized who was calling from the shore. They uh, he could not be bothered to wait for the boat to return to shore with their catch of fish, so he jumped overboard and outswam the boat himself. Finally, a race he won. As he embraced his Lord, any shame and preconceived fears of how Jesus would receive Peter melted away. He was not just embracing his Lord. He was embracing his friend. And yet Jesus did not act as if the denial did not happen. No, instead, Jesus begins by asking Peter, Peter, do you love me? Yes, Lord, you know that I love you, Peter replied. Then feed my lambs, Jesus told him. Peter, do you love me? I just said it, but yes, Lord, you know that I love you. Take care of my sheep. And yet a third time, Peter, do you love me? And with the question being asked a third time, Jesus highlighted what he wanted Peter, Peter to realize, and Peter did realize it, that Jesus knew he denied him three times. Three times he asked Peter if he loved him, just as three, titers, 
Three times Peter had denied him. The denial, his sin, was not just forgotten. The shame began to creep in. He knows and he has not forgotten. How can I live with what I've done to my friend? And then Peter realized what Jesus' response was each time Peter answered. Peter, feed my sheep. In other words, I once told you that you would be a fisher of men, the rock of my church. Peter, regardless of what you have done, step into that role of shepherd. Feed my sheep, become the rock on which the church is built. You see, Peter realized that Jesus was not calling to mind Peter's sin in order to shame him into behavior. Jesus was pointing out that on this side of the crucifixion, his shame no longer had a place. Because death had been defeated, Peter did not need to do what most men did when they were overcome with shame. Peter was, at one time, called into a high calling of telling people about who Jesus was, and Jesus reminded him of that calling, that despite his failures and shortcomings, it still was his calling. Jesus confirmed the calling of Peter and the rest of his disciples to be witnesses in Jerusalem and in Judea and Samaria and even to the ends of the earth. And he told him they would do this in the power of the Holy Spirit. And then Jesus left. And then, even as a man who had seen Jesus heal his mother-in-law, as a man who had walked on water with Jesus, who had seen the holes in the hand of a man alive once more, even then Peter did not expect the wildness that happened next. They did receive the Holy Spirit. In a moment, many were calling the Pentecost, and Peter was used in ways he had only been privy to seeing before. Peter healed people. He cast out demons. And most importantly, he saw the followers of Jesus begin to multiply. He was preaching in public places, and without explanation, thousands and thousands were pledging to follow their lives, or to, to follow Jesus with their lives. And just like with Jesus, as their ministry became popular, so did the resentment of their ministry from the religious elites. And not just any religious elites, but the same one, the same ones that had sat in the room that condemned Jesus to death. In fact, the resentment became so strong that Peter and John were called to meet with this same council. Peter knew who these men were. He knew they were the ones that decided that Jesus ought to be crucified. And he once again found himself in a situation that was life or death and depended on how he associated himself with Jesus. And yet, this time was different. He was on the right side of the empty grave, and Peter had encountered the resurrected king. So as Peter stood in front of the high priest, he did not deny Jesus. Instead, empowered by the Holy Spirit, he told them, Salvation is found in no one but Jesus, for there is no other name under heaven given to mankind by which we must be saved. And what happened? The council, knowing that they were talking to ordinary unschooled men, their words, were shocked. They let the men go 
not having enough evidence to condemn them. And Peter continued to be the rock that the church was built on, seeing thousands and thousands of people put their trust in Jesus because of his faithfulness. This is the story of Simon Peter, the story of a man that almost despite himself became the rock on which the church was built. And because of that very fact, that it was despite his failures, his shortcomings, this is not just a story about Simon Peter, right? This is a story of God, who despite our failures and our shame that often keep us in comfortable spots, desires to include us in the redeeming work of life abundance. It is... It is a story of the power of the resurrected king, right? The power that God told Paul is made perfect in our weakness. The power that Paul himself says is carried in jars of clay to show that this all-surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. The power that makes relationship with the God of the universe a possibility in the first place. But why am I telling the story of Peter and the resurrected king. What is the relevance for us? As we consider the story of Peter, I want to call us to another way of living in our broken world, another way of being a church for Uptown. What if we, like Peter, were a church so unbelievably transformed by our encounters with the resurrected king that it was obvious Uh, to anyone who came to us. I think far more than we realize, just like Peter, we live in the shame of our failures and our missed expectations. And when you live in light of shame, you live a life hidden because you're worried about what others might think of you. And that hiddenness translates to God, does it not? What, uh, What if God finds out who I am? Will he still love me? We hide from God and the goodness that is relationship with him. And yet, we are not called to live this way. We do not have to live this way. Where where does shame come from? Shame stems from failing our own expectations and others' expectations. I want to be a certain way, do certain things, sound certain ways, right? And yet, so often, I fail and fall short. And my identity is formed based not on even how those uh, failures are received by others, but by how I think others will receive them. But we are called into a different identity, a different way of forming our worth. Our worth is not based on how we perform or even who we are, but it is based on who we trust our identity with. You see, Peter realized on the shore of that sea sopping wet, that he was not defined by his swinging of the sword or by his denying Jesus. He was was defined by loving Jesus. Peter, do you love me? And because Peter's love was even possible because Jesus first loved him and got up from the grave, Peter knew that his identity was now secure, not in himself, not in what he did, not even in how well he loved Jesus, but in the unshakable character and love of Jesus himself. His encounter with the resurrected king melted away any pretense, any hiding, 
any behavior modification, and it allowed him to live uh, fully out his calling of taking care of the sheep. Peter's encounter with the resurrected king transformed his shame into boldness. I want our church to be a place, and I think in ways it really, really is, but I want us to continue to be a place where we know that our standing with God is not based on who we are, but on who he is. I want our church to be a place where shame knows no home. Where when we see the roots of shame taking place in others' words and actions, that we call them back home into the grace in which we now stand. And I want our church to be a place where because of the transformation that has happened in our own lives, we want others to experience that transformation and to experience the love of Christ with us. Amen? There's another part of Peter's story that has always captured me that I didn't include in the narrative. Uh, It was the beginning point where Jesus's ministry started to get difficult when many started to become offended by some of his teaching, and so they began to leave. Let me just read this one for you. I didn't rewrite it. Uh, This is John 6, 66 through 69. From this time, many of his disciples turned back and no longer followed him. You do not want to leave too, do you? Jesus asked the 12. Simon Peter answered him, that rash, impulsive answering, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. We have come to believe and to know that you are the Holy One of God. Lord, to whom shall we go? Let us be a church that believes that, Messio Dei that Jesus has the words of eternal life and let us live like it, fully abandoning our shame and living out the boldness of Christ. Thank you for listening to the Missio Day Uptown Podcast. We are a church committed to our neighborhood, seeking to love and serve our beautifully unique community as we join God as he makes all things new. To learn more about us, visit mduptown.com.